Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. Samuel Moyne will consider the political snares of impeaching Trump. And then at the bottom of the hour, Tom Athanasiu will evaluate the great merits of Bernie Sanders' climate plan. First, Trump. Sure, he's odious in so many ways, and it would be nice to see the back of him. But is impeachment the way to do that with an election fewer than 400 days away? Here's Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale, with some answers. Samuel Moyne. Let's start with a question of law, since you are a law professor. Impeachment. What is the standard of impeachable offense? Is the Constitution specific on that? The phrasing does seem not terribly precise. So what's your understanding of it as, as the law professor side of you? You can take kind of two tacks on what, what it might mean. You can do a historical dive into what the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors might have meant. The trouble is that kind of not many people agree about that. And there are just contending views. I think everyone is sure that it's not exactly the same as whatever is illegal. It could embrace broader moral transgressions or just general unfitness. And so Donald Trump is definitely eligible. The real answer, the second more strategic answer was given by Gerald Ford, I believe, when he said, what counts as a high crime and misdemeanor is whatever the Congress feels like it is at a current moment in history. And so it seems like we're at such a moment when the Congress will get to define this particular action and maybe broader things as high crime and misdemeanor or impeachable offense. So it's more of a political uh, category than a legal one. Absolutely. And even if it were, there were a way and with other kinds of wrongdoers to say there's a law that's apolitical. When it comes to presidents, there's no way to say that his impeachment and removal would not be highly political. So it certainly is. And it, then the question is, is it good politics? I was looking at the, uh, the Bill of Indictment uh, against uh, Richard Nixon, the Articles of Impeachment, which passed the yep. Judiciary Committee but never passed the full House. And those are some serious, serious things. Uh, he was right. not just the Watergate stuff, establishing a private spy system within the White House, um, using Correct. the IRS to harass political opponents. Trump is an odious, odious character. But like something like the detention camps, horrible, morally repulsive. But are they illegal? There are people who want to impeach him over that sort of thing. But those are political decisions, not crimes, are they? Sure. I mean, you know, activists have have, have demanded from judges, you know, injunctions against these kinds of practices. And the trouble is that, especially in foreign affairs, but even in domestic politics, over the decades, we've given a huge amount of power to presidents. And, and immigration is, is a, an area which is just remarkably far gone. And so if that's true, we should really take these egregious things that he's done as an occasion to revisit our choices as Americans. But it's not that he's he's committed obvious crimes. I mean, it's true that there were the arguments around obstruction of justice in the second volume of Robert Mueller's report, which also figured in Richard Nixon's list of particulars, but it was just one. And the big difference between the two gentlemen is that uh, it's sort of hilarious, but Donald Trump can never succeed in breaking the law. So when he tries to do something, um, he either fails or he's opposed by his own henchmen, which is just very different than in the Nixonian case. In this particular instance, it's not as if, uh, though there was seemingly a kind of attempt to do a deal with Ukraine. It's not as if it came to pass. Now, we can say that there, an attempted bribe is still a high crime and misdemeanor. If that's the way they go, then that's the way they go. But I think the more remarkable fact about Trump is that whether in the 
allegations of the first volume of the Mueller report are now, he can't nail the landing on any of his attempts to break big laws. Well, that was uh, what Steve Bannon said, or it's quoted by uh, Michael Wolf is saying about the Russia story, that uh, these guys are too incompetent to plot anything. Correct. <laughs> so it does Correct. seem like this is an ongoing problem with Trump uh, ever since. Correct. Uh, Correct. So, so what remains is kind of political enmity and opposition to the president. And we have a system for that. It's called not losing again the next time around. You could say that he was uh, using a foreign policy weapon uh, for personal electoral gain, but you know he's certainly not the first president to do that. You know Nixon uh, prolonged the war in in, uh, in Vietnam. Uh, we had uh, Reagan uh, prolonging the uh, the captivity of the Iranian hostages. This is not unprecedented right. presidential behavior. How many times has the you know tail wagged the dog in our history? You don't want to start counting. You don't want to minimize it, but. You want to get clear what exactly you're going to gain from a, a highly political act of this kind. That's the next question I have. I, I really don't understand the logic of, uh, of impeaching this guy a little more than a year before the election. It's going to take months for the, the machinery of Congress to work. I believe it was something like 13 or 15 months between the time that uh, the Watergate hearings began and Nixon resigned. I mean, this was not going to be an overnight procedure. This will come to ripeness presumably, at the height of election season. And that would be very, very confusing. <laughs> what does that mean? I agree. If you wanted to put the best face on, on the other side, you would say the Democrats are, first of all, some of them, I think, intelligently are trying to rush uh, and get, get something out early, possibly by Thanksgiving. And if, if the goal is the equivalent of congressional censure, which they could also do instead of impeachment. But if the goal is to damage the president and also to say laws were broken, it stinks to high heaven, we can't sit idly by, that would be the best argument. And if they got it done quickly, it wouldn't interfere with the election. But the question is, how much agreement is there amongst the congressional Democrats about that strategy? Can they get it done quickly and pivot? Uh, or will it become a kind of you know, sideshow in the Senate where the Republicans have power that kind of succeeds in taking all the air out of the room in the primaries and general election. Well, as it is, this looks like it's going to upstage not only the presidential campaign, but you know, the congressional campaigns as well. Uh, is that something that the Democrats really want to do at this point? I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, the, the basic risks are, are two and they're very serious. And I don't think the Democrats have thought them through. So the first is that you're fundamentally helping the Republicans get their party back. And if you're playing politics and you want to beat Republicans, what better party to beat than one that's headed by this charlatan and, and monster? Second, the Democrats risk distracting from their own obligation to present a different vision as legislators before the country. And so whether it's in the presidential contest or in congressional ones, the Democrats have this onus on them to avoid restoring the status quo ante. And my worry is that the coalition of folks who are pressing for this really just want to go back to a world of, let's say, Joe Biden v. Mike Pence, which is the old contest of of left and right neoliberals, which we've seen in this country for decades and which has led it to ruin. Now, a positive externality of this scandal, though, is it does seem to be uh, damaging Joe Biden's image. It could. It could. And if that's what happens uh, and you're a progressive, you might welcome it. And that's certainly worth considering. But we just don't know yet whether the reverse uh, won't happen. He could come out strengthened once the American people see there's a lot to Trump's, you know, hijinks and very little to Joe Biden's, especially if it's really just his son's operating on his own. Yeah, but it still looks really smelly. And I can imagine the Republican uh, ad makers and propagandists would have a field day with the uh, this guy who's clearly a, you know, like a third rate mediocrity getting $50,000 a month for advising on topics he knows nothing about. 
Absolutely. I assume they will. And, and maybe that's the reason, uh, along with what we've already discussed, kind of damaging Trump, that there's a case for impeachment, especially for on the left, those in the squad and others who have supported it fervently, that they feel they can drive the whole party to the left. But I'm not convinced. And to me, the huge risks of helping the Republicans get their party back and driving the Democrats to the center around kind of good governance themes seems to me more likely. I admire the squad, squad enormously, but I don't really understand what their thinking is here. Uh, it does seem like more of a gift to centrist Democrats. And there was a piece in the Washington Post the other day that said the impeachment thing really got going when the so-called seven national security Democrats, the first-term people with backgrounds in the military and the CIA, were so shocked by uh, the Ukraine story that they pushed impeachment. That's not a wing of the party that I would uh, particularly want to promote. No, me neither. And I would guess that the left has has been so behind this because it's red meat for a certain uh, unthinking sector of the base. But the drivers are going to be those centrists uh, who really want to kind of restore the national security order and the intelligence order that has been so threatened by Trump's presidency. So that's a huge risk that I think we need to kind of think seriously about. Now, this um, follows upon uh, the obsession with Russiagate and the, the Mueller obsession. You had a similar critique of that, that it was a substitute for politics, right? Correct. You know, I, I watched with bated breath for while basically national politics was sucked for two years into what proved a dud. And... The same folks who promised us that there would be a kind of fuse lit leading to directly to the explosion, an explosion under this president, are the same ones who are just certain that there's enough to get Trump this time around. And I just can't understand why we would lend credibility to those bad politicians who really were attempting to use the investigation as a way to sap Trump's legitimacy and failed the first time around, uh, suggesting that we shouldn't trust them when, they, when they're sure they have the goods the second time around. I'm speaking with Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale. Well, you, know, you could almost turn the argument that Trump and his people make against the Democrats, so the argument being that uh, he was using the machinery of government for personal gain. But they're using the machinery of government, whether it's the Mueller investigation or the impeachment investigation, also for partisan gain uh, on their own. I mean, it just it seems like a, a misuse of state power in either case. I think that's right. That was certainly true of the Mueller report, which I think can, can convinced a lot of people of the validity of this deep state narrative. And a lot of those are Trump's voters whom the Democrats need to win back. So the idea that you'd, you'd even risk that sort of alienation seems like a risk worth considering. In this case, if it's perfectly legitimate for the House of Representatives uh, to investigate the president, and arguably we want it to be constantly aware of what the president is doing. One thing that ought to come out of our experience, not just of Trump, but of prior presidents, uh, really since the Cold War, is that we failed in Vietnam to pin down the president. We've given him more and more power. And so that that's all something that we should care about across different sectors of the Democratic Party and across parties. But if it really does look like a political act to save ourselves the trouble of winning the election uh, by convincing our fellow citizens, I think we'll rue the day that we went down this road. I was very uh, uncomfortable the other day reading a David Brooks column and finding myself agreeing with a lot of it. But he made the point in there that it would be very easy for the Republicans to say, uh, you can't win an election. So you're a hundred millionaires in this, you're looking to a hundred millionaires in the Senate to deliver you from its results. Is there something to that, that Brooks argument? I think so. I think whenever one finds oneself in agreement with uh, Brooks or Ross Douthat, who are, are really counselors to the Republican Party or really fans of Democratic centrists, one should kind of check oneself to make sure. But even if the, the, you know, the, the argument he gave about 
a rich senators doesn't work out. I do think there's no legitimacy in modern politics like electoral legitimacy that comes from winning a fair and square fight, even within our broken American system of presidential election. And it will look bad for Trump to leave uh, power, especially given kind of the unclarity about what what he's done wrong legally. And the voters who think that there's just elite control of democracy and it's not worth uh, taking seriously will stay home, won't vote for Democrats, will think that politics is tarnished for a generation, and that that would be too bad. Well, another point that uh, Brooks made in that column was that uh, Democrats don't trust uh, a good deal of the electorate because they're all racists. You can make that argument and not be completely uh, off base. You could, but look, I mean, politics involves elite rule regardless. So we're talking about um, how, how much kind of legitimacy the people provide various elites and where those elites come from and what they do on behalf of majorities. And I agree with you that what has led to Trump is that elites in both parties have lost touch in part because they're contemptuous of ordinary people. As someone from Missouri, I very, I'm very worried uh, with how this kind of operation will play amongst the very voters the Democratic Party needs to attract back with a, a kind of better politics around endless war and a better politics around economic inequality, which it's not offering. Instead, it's offering impeachment as a quick fix and as an elite solution. Which is just replacing Russiagate as that quick fix. Correct. And you said in the Guardian piece, uh, which came out before uh, the whistleblower's uh, report was released, that uh, it's not even clear that Trump had offered anything in exchange uh, for his uh, pressure on, on, on the Ukrainian uh, president. Uh, there was, a, I think you said, a pro without a quid. Uh, do you still feel that way after having seen the, uh, the whistleblower's report? I think it's worth investigating as a matter of oversight. In the end, it seems as if uh, it it will come down to how you read the transcript, since the whistleblower is getting us worried about what, what exactly went on between these two presidents. If you read the transcript, Trump does definitely request a favor, but it's he really wants to go back and revisit 2016 and who may have controlled various servers, uh, because he he wants more than anything else, I think, not to win re-election, but to prove finally to skeptics that he won fair and square last time. That won't ever happen, but that's directly what he asked for. It's true that later in the call, he gets around to Joe Biden, and it's hazy. What are we going to count once we've decided to make this a political choice, what are we going to count as unsavory enough, a kind of implicit deal? There's no nothing like the Nixonian clarity in this case. And so one wonders, is this the fact pattern one wants to take to the American people and say he's dead to rights? I'm not sure. And it's also uh, another contrast with the Nixon uh, era is that uh, it's a different Republican Party. Nixon resigned when uh, Barry Goldwater told him the Republican he'd lost the Republicans in the Senate and he would get convicted. He resigned like just days afterwards, I believe. It's really hard to imagine Mitch McConnell's Republican Party acting in the, in the same way. So I'm not sure what all this will accomplish. Even if you know the House votes these articles of impeachment, uh, it's almost certain that Trump would be exonerated in the Senate, and uh, then he could claim exoneration uh, uh, as he Correct. did after the Mueller report. So I don't really understand the end game of this, the political strategy behind it. Correct. I, I think it's an essential point which several have made that the the Republicans in the era of Nixon understood that Nixon was a servant of the party, not the other way around. Now, I actually think Trump has been much more a servant of the Republican Party in Congress than people have understood. And we could get back to that if you want. But in this scenario, I agree with you that the the party is not the same as in the 70s. And the circumstances under which enough Republicans would switch side seem unclear. And yet the fate of the republic hinges on our guesswork on that matter. So 
the Democrats who are, or are, are driving the train can't possibly have any better guess than you or I about when the Republicans will uh, ditch their leader. And, and yet they're going ahead anyway. So the only hope is that they really have thought that the the damage to the president through the indictment process will be greater than the exoneration effect Trump can claim once the Republicans let him off the hook in the Senate. Now, I'm curious about that remark of yours about him being a better servant to the, the party than, than people give him credit for, because you know, I was thinking he doesn't understand anything about policy, really. And uh, all he cares about is, you know, a few core issues. I think immigration is something he really cares about for you know, just he's viscerally xenophobic. And uh, but just uh, that's what's driving that. But on a lot of other issues, I don't think he really cares or knows enough to have an opinion. So he just contracts out policy to, um, you know, these sort of Coke circle Republicans. Uh, is that what you Correct. mean? I think that's largely true. Um, so, so you could distinguish first between the huge zone of power that the president has on his own, thanks to our mistakes over generations in empowering the presidency. And and one area is immigration that he does care about, and he's decided what that policy will look like. But then there's a huge range of other things where, as you say, he's basically given the portfolio to others. But when one looks at when the legislature, the Congress has to be involved, it's there that I think we really see that the Republican Party is not as different as people say, because when you look at the legislative achievements of Donald Trump, when he signed legislation that's actually passed Congress, it's been the old Republican fusionist uh, ideology, which is to say free market economics in the form of a massive tax cut and conservative morality in the form of a slew of federal judges appointed with Congress leading the way. So on both of those areas where Congress has been involved, it's actually exerted much more power under Trump than maybe Trump himself. Of course, he's got a very great power of distraction. So a lot of people even notice this, this thing going through is, you know, did you see this morning's tweets? Yeah, of course. Of course. No, that's right. I mean, the only saving grace is that since 2016, Trump has not been able to do anything legislatively. All that has happened in Congress is Senate confirmation of more and more judges. But the tax cut was done at the beginning and the damage was done. Uh, and that was a classic case of the old Republican Party surviving and, in fact, thriving in the Trump era. In some, we should really um, be very skeptical about looking at impeachment as a way of delivering us from this monster. I, I think it is. The arguments we're reviewing clearly have lost for the, the moment. The momentum is behind those who have favored an attempt at a quick fix. And now they have to shoulder the responsibility for what comes next. I think we'll have to concede they were right if it turns out they damaged the president enough that he loses in the general election. But if they're wrong, uh, there'll be hell to pay. Although if it's about damaging in the general election, that's using the machinery of state for partisan political gain. That's right. That's right. But again, if it's all politics anyway, the question is, what's the best way to damage him? And I think in the long run, if there's not this pivot to some kind of constructive, forward-looking politics, notably one that addresses our endless war and economic inequality. You're neither using the tools of state well, nor are you getting things done that the people want and need. That was Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of the octet by the Soviet composer, someone I've just discovered, Glina Ustvolskaya, written in 1949 from a collection of her chamber works on Northern Flowers records. Next, the climate crisis. I first came across Thomas Thanasiu's work in Processed World, a magazine on technology, culture, and office life that flourished from the 1980s into the early 1990s. He's written extensively on political ecology and climate and is the co-founder and director of EcoEquity, which, in its own words, is a small activist think tank that has had an outsized impact on the global climate equity debate. It has done this primarily, but not exclusively, by way of its work on fair shares effort sharing in the context of a global emergency climate mobilization. Tom has an article in The Nation on Bernie Sanders' climate plan, which draws extensively on eco-equity's work. Tom Athanasiu. So, Tom, you have some good things to say about uh, the Bernie Sanders' climate plan. What, what distinguishes it from all those other folks' have plans? That's kind of dropping me in at the deep end. The thing is that I've been working in the international climate regime for a very, very long time. And I think the first topic we have to hit before I can talk about that coherently is why I think we need a global climate agreement and why I think we need to make Paris work. I mean, maybe your audience doesn't want to hear that topic. I mean, a lot of people on the left love to hate the Paris Agreement. But if you're not there, I could tell you why I think we need it. Okay, well, you know, I imagine the critique would be that it's weak and empty and gestural, right? Uh, But uh, why do you think we need it? The core of the critique is that it's not legally binding, which I suppose is that it's weak and empty and gestural. And there's two things about that. One is that you were never going to get a legally binding global climate treaty. And the other one is that it's built to be made stronger over time if the national governments pushed by the national social movements are able to do that. I don't want to rat hole on Paris, but it's necessary because what I'm really after and what the Sanders Green New Deal is about, in part, is a global Green New Deal. And the point I I want to stress is that national Green New Deals are not going to do it. The real place that this conversation begins is with the science, which is to say, you know, the the geophysics of the situation. We're in deep doo-doo. Last October, with the release of the IPC's special report on 1.5 degrees, things changed. The general sense now is that denialism is collapsing, that neoliberalism is in trouble and doesn't know where to go, that the ruling class, as you like to stress, doesn't know its ass from its elbow. And in that context, people are going to despair if they don't have a transition story. We need a transition story that we actually believe. If you drill down into the despair that you'll find in in all the social movements right now, you'll find that, to my mind, it has a couple of fundamental anchors, but one of them is that people don't have such a transition story. And my point is that you can build a transition story that's actually believable if you are honest about the structure of the problem and if you can put together plausible ways of getting the building blocks that you need to to address the problem. And one of those building blocks is a global regime that's architected the way the Paris Agreement is architected. Another one of those building blocks is a Green New Deal, but not just a Green New Deal in the United, in the United States, a Green New Deal in the United States and Canada and another one in Mexico and another one in Europe and another one in India and another, another one in Australia and another one in China. Green New Deals everywhere. The answer to your question about why I'm so excited about the Sanders Green New Deal is that Bernie Sanders is the first politician who made a proposal in the context of his nationally rooted domestic Green New Deal that bridges the gap between national mobilization and international mobilization. And the truth here is that 
he did this in part based on my work, has taken an internationalist position in which the United States would not only make every effort to decarbonize its domestic economy, but would also put a very large down payment on international action that would fund the Paris mechanisms and potentially animate the international agreement and thus drive decarbonization in the developing countries as well as the wealthy countries. So so it's a building blocks kind of thing. But I think that if you squint and if you allow yourself to hope and if you imagine a Green New Deal in the United States that is the, the classical one that we're all really familiar with by now that ever since the AOC marquee rollout in February, the one that's being built out now, the, the one that hopefully we're going to be able to put into motion after the election and lots of others in all kinds of other countries. If all of those Green New Deals had as part of their basic uh, layout, a fair shares internationalist support plank like the one that Bernie has included. And I could talk about it in detail if you ask me about it. I want to get to that in a moment. But I I just wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned the psychology of of this. It's so easy to uh, just fall victim to complete despair. That's just hopeless, too late, doom. And you look at you know, idiots like Trump and uh, even, you know, Justin Trudeau buying pipelines while he's planting trees and all this nonsense. Over the last 10 days or so, we've seen this incredible mobilization around the world of people out in the streets. The, the Greta Thunberg phenomenon is just remarkable. What do you think of that politically? Is, it, is this some kind of shift in public opinion? Is this really is kind of taking off as a popular passion and a popular movement? I think the easiest way to talk about that is to talk about the new protest signs that were popularized by the Extinction Rebellion folks in the UK, which which are now showing up in other places as well, including the states, which simply say, tell the truth. And it's an incredibly powerful demand. And usually it leads to despair because Geophysically, the truth is that we're in very, very deep trouble. And if you, if, if I wanted to take a deep dive on that, I would uh, do so by talking about the so-called hothouse earth paper and what it means and tipping points and tipping cascades and, and how the traditional temperature target that the scientists were pushing for a long time, which was two degrees centigrade, which is now turning out to be way too dangerous. And so that is part of the truth. Another part of the truth is that geophysically, it's not too late. We could probably stabilize the climate system and manage our way through it. But it really is too late for incrementalism. I mean, the whole debate that has, you know, been one of the underlying debates in the left for decades now between, you know, quote unquote revolution and and incremental reform, radical reform, what is, you know, that debate is over. It's obsolete because we have got to decarbonize the entire global economy as fast as humanly possible. The, the, The numeric details don't matter anymore. How fast do we have to decarbonize the economy as fast as possible. And so when asked to tell the truth by the youth, nobody has a happy story to tell. And that includes the most rabid of the anti-capitalist revolutionaries. Nobody's got an easy story. There is no easy way forward. I think these kids are great. They're making exactly the right demand. The surprise to me is the amount of moral power that turned out to be latent in the teenagers. You know what I mean? Like the whole thing that Greta does, which is that the adults have failed and how dare you and why are you looking to us for hope? It's very, very powerful. And and if, if we weren't in a situation where the monkeys have taken over the, the – I'm sorry, I don't mean to slander – the higher primates, the, you know, what are they exactly? The people who have taken over. Clowns and barbarians. I... The clowns and barbarians, the killer clowns, as George Monbiot calls them. If it wasn't for the fact that they've taken over the ruling class, we would have a, 
we would have an interesting situation. And, you know, I think we will have an interesting situation. I don't think it goes back to anything like what it used to be anymore. I think we are hitting a tipping cascade and there's nowhere to go but forward. I mean, and I think the kids have been part of that. But it's part of a general shift in the mood. The Financial Times columnist Martin Wolf wrote, uh, the real danger is not the hard denialists like Trump and those idiots, but the soft denialists, the sort of like mainstream Democrats, say we can proceed incrementally with little steps here and there, and you know maybe by 2050 we can do something. Does he have a point that these are the real problem right now? Well, it's absolutely true that that classical denialism is is dead. It's it's a, it's a zombie. It's only kept going by infusions of money. There's a whole version of new schools of new denialism coming out. But yeah, I would agree with Wolf. The lukewarmists, as they're some, sometimes called, are very, very dangerous. Doug, it's going to be almost impossible to hold the warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade in the sense that we would have to do everything and we would have to get really lucky at the level of the the behavior of the of the earth system and the new science indicates that we're not going to get lucky i mean there's been some very bad recalibrations of fundamental constants like the climate sensitivity uh, in the last just six months we have to do everything and we have to get lucky very lucky to hold 1.5 at two which is the maximum end of the paris target well below two degrees. At two degrees, there's a significant possibility of of tipping cascades, as they are now called, which would which would be irreversible and which would really, I mean, really take us into an apocalyptic storyline. So the idea that you would calm people down by saying that something like business as usual might lead you to the transformation that we need, it's absolutely absurd. And to try to diffuse the potential for a real mobilization by telling people a story like that, it's its just despicable. I'm speaking with Thomas Thanasiu, director of the Eco Equity Institute based in Berkeley. Back to international action and uh, the, the Sanders plan. A lot of Americans have problems with the idea that we're expected to do so much and all these poor countries are not going to ex- expected to do very much. You know, India and China are the big polluters, of course, Part of the reason they pollute so much is they're exporting to us. Still, uh, there, there's a sense that can us ask us to, to to bear all this burden while these other people are polluting freely. How do you persuade people who think like that that uh, some degree of sacrifice might be necessary on the part of the richer countries in the world? Well, I don't talk about sacrifice, and, and Sanders doesn't talk about san- sacrifice. The, as I said before, the internationalist plank that he's picked up from the Climate Equity Reference Project, which I co-direct, and my co-director is uh, Shivan Kartha at the Stockholm Environment Institute in Boston. But the key keystone concept of, of the climate equity reference framework, as we like to call it, is fair shares. It's not sacrifice. It's not hard to understand. It's very simple. It's that climate is a global commons problem, and the only solution to it is one in which all actors see all other actors as at least attempting to do their fair share. The problem then becomes, how do you understand national fair shares in a world where countries are, A, at radically different levels of economic development and be all internally riven by class inequality. And that's the problem that we've set out to solve. And the way that we've set out to solve it is with an appeal to high level equity principles. And the two equity principles that we rely on most are capacity to act, which is a function of wealth and historical responsibility, which is a function of history, obviously. And people can can look at the model online. They can they can run the calculator online. It's all there at, at the Climate Equity Reference Project website. And the Sanders policy people picked it up. And what it says is that you can have a political negotiation, a political debate between 
classes, between sectors, between countries to try to agree on what it means in terms of historical responsibility, what it means in terms of national capacity to define fair shares. And then you define and then you can run the numbers and it's more or less simple math. And the important point is that a country's fair share is a function of the work that needs to be done globally. It's not a function of its national emissions. That's the key thing. So the IPCC tells us that to have a 50-50 chance, not a very good chance, of holding the warming to 1.5 degrees, we have to reduce emissions by about 45% below 2010 levels by 2030. And it's just a way marker, you know, it's just a milestone, but say, say just to keep this simple for the point of conversation, we have to cut global emissions in half by 2030. Obviously countries that are rich and countries that have a lot of historical responsibility need to do more than that, right? So what the climate emergency movements have done it's, is that they've demanded that their countries like the United States or England drive emissions reductions to by 100% by 2030. You know, and that was the original sunrise position, though they've, they've recalibrated since then for good reasons. It's impossible. You can't do it. The Sanders policy crowd went through an elaborate techno-economic sectoral bottom-up analysis of the American economy and determined that the United States could, if it went to a wartime mobilization, decrease domestic emissions by 71 percent by 2030. But that was as far as it could possibly get. What in practice does that mean? You see some folks uh, who spin out uh, uh, scenarios that say, this will all pay for itself, and they make it sound rather painless. To me, it seems like we really have to change the way we live rather dramatically, uh, physically, spatial patterns of, of, of settlement. I live under a, a flight path to the LaGuardia Airport. Every minute or two, a jet comes by. All this stuff has to change, right? It's not just something that's going to pay for itself with a few percentage points of GDP. And that's exactly right. And that's our that's our point. The transition is going to be extremely expensive. And and you can understand why people used to think that the right strategy was to soft pedal the transition because they saw this endless civil war with the killer clowns in which in which nothing was getting done and nothing could get done. And they thought, well, at least if we pretend it's going to be a win-win situation, we can move forward incrementally and we might hit a tipping point. But now we're in a different situation because the science has gotten so clear and the youth have accepted it and the scientists are tearing their hair out and the people aren't interested in that story anymore. But what what the Sanders analysis basically comes down to is assume political and economic will, assume a mass mobilization for a Green New Deal in the United States. How far could you get by 2030? And you look at the rate, uh, you look at the photovoltaic price curves, you, you look at the capacity for electric cars, you look at you know, a huge range of a very concrete sectoral and technological policies. You, you imagine a war mobilization, they got to 71%. Bank that number for a second. Now go back to the fair shares thing. What does the United States need to do in the context of a global mobilization that is trying to reach net zero by 2050, which means 50% declined by 2030. And it's way more than 71%. The United States' fair share, depending on how you calibrate the fair shares model, is something from 170% below zero to maybe a 250% decline. How does the United States reduce its emissions by 250%? Or the Sanders number, let's use his numbers just for clarity, 161%. That was the way they decided to calibrate the fair shares model. So they decided that the United States's fair share in 2030 was 161% decline. Notice 
that that number is much larger than 100%. So the Sunrise people, the Extinction Rebellion people are demanding 100% reductions. Sanders said no, 161% reductions. And our techno-economic analysis tells us that we can do 71% of it within the United States. That means we need to do an additional 90% of it outside the United States. We hate emissions trading for a variety of reasons. So we're going to do it by putting money into the Green Climate Fund, which was created as part of the Paris Agreement. And we're not going to just put back the $2 billion that Obama had committed to go into the the fund, and and we're going to put in $200 billion, increase by a hundredfold, right? That's what Sanders did. That was the big move. He said, we're going to do everything to decarbonize the American economy, and we're going to pay our fair share internationally such that when you add the two bits together, they approximate the United States' fair share as calculated on the basis of capacity to act and historical responsibility. What would the poorer countries do with this, uh, the, the money for this carbon fund? What, what physical uh, moves would have to be taken? The great thing about the Green Climate Fund is that it's an institution that was created by the Paris regime that after basically a two-year political struggle between the the developed and the developing countries and with a, a lot a lot of participation by global civil society movements in both the North and the South, it's a relatively has a relatively democratic governance system, and it has a relatively, actually a really quite sophisticated system for determining how to calculate the amount of support that a developing country should get for any given project. So, So imagine a country like, say, Ethiopia, who says that we want to completely reform our agricultural system in a way as to make it ca- carbon neutral and it will cost us you, you they can't just say it'll cost us 17 billion dollars they have to say and here's the plan by which we're going to do it this is the phases of the plan this is how many people it will take this is the exact timeline you know it and there are expert committees and and it gets funded that's how the the GCF works by matching concrete proposals for action with international support this all sounds like it would require a degree of international cooperation the world has never seen before combined with a, a sense of rationality uh, and uh, equity that uh, we've also never seen before well you know you're absolutely right Doug you hit the nail right on the head. I like to say in this context, I like to say we only need two things to save human civilization. And and the first one is a thoroughgoing technology revolution. See if, what would you guess the second one is? I don't know. Revolution in our hearts and souls. No, the second one is robust cooperation, which is the one you just proposed. We only need two things to save human civilization, technology and cooperation. And guess what? We have the technology. What we don't have is the cooperation. The question is whether we can cooperate in an emergency situation. That's why people are always talking about wartime mobilization. The wartime bit is just a gesture towards trying to summon up an idea in people's minds of what really robust cooperation would look like. It's actually a pretty bad metaphor. But yeah, it would take a lot of cooperation. But it's possible. It's possible. There's no physical reason why we couldn't do it. There's nothing in the biogeochemistry that says we can't do it. The, the challenge is merely political economic. It's merely a political economic challenge. And that, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say that, but given the extent of the despair and given how strongly founded the grounds of the despair are, it's a really, really important to make that distinction and not, and not to just wallow wallow in the supposed inevitability of the collapse as is becoming fashionable. 
Well, then this is the time to turn Maggie Thatcher's uh, acronym back on her. There is no alternative, Tina. That's a very good point. There's no alternative. I mean, what what are we going to do? Just go crazy? Or I die. Mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what are we going to do? I mean, we're not going to just do nothing, are we? I don't think so. I don't think we go back from here. The emergency movements get larger from here. And the problem with the emergency movements is that they're mostly just street movements. And I mean, we love the street. We love mobilization. That's where the power comes from. But we need a policy apparatus that can support coordinated global mobilization. That was Tom Athanasiu, director of Eco Equity, a Berkeley-based think tank. His article, Only a Global Green New Deal Can Save the Planet, is in the September 30th issue of The Nation. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a belated 20th anniversary celebration for the Mezzanine album by Massive Attack. This is Teardrop, sung by Elizabeth Fraser of the Cocteau Twins. Till next week, bye.